This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker and I'm joined by Aaron Bastani, um, who is joining me for the last time for two or three weeks. And that's because you have some quite exciting news. You're going to become a father very soon, huh? Hopefully, Michael. Uh, God willing, everything should be fine. Uh, the expected date for the baby's arrival is Tuesday. Uh, so I'll be taking off most of next week and then I'll be off for, I think, three weeks. Um, we have a month of paternity leave here at Navarra, which is obviously good. Uh, but I'm looking to add sort of a week to my days off in January. So sort of staggering it. So I will be back on people's screens before the end of the year. I'm very happy to say. I think you also have a message for our audience, a separate one. I do. I want to uh, make a correction in regards to a show that went out uh, last month on October 13th edition of Navarra Live. We reported on a segment of BBC Question Time pertaining to a tweet by Jake Wallace-Simons, he's the uh, editor of the Jewish Chronicle, in which we accused him of lying about what he had posted based on his interaction with an audience member. Unfortunately, we misquoted the audience member, meaning the implication that Jake had lied was wrong. We are happy to put the record straight in regard to that and to apologize to Mr. Wallace-Simons. Mr. Wallace-Simons strongly denies that he is Islamophobic and says that his tweet referred to jihadism, not Islam, and we're happy to include his clarification here. Uh, back to you, Michael. We are, of course, always happy to make corrections. We will be talking about the Jewish Chronicle later in the show. Um, and coming up later tonight, the Gaza War has been bringing anti-Muslim racists out of the woodwork. We'll be looking at one of them. Some unsurprising yet still shocking statements from Republicans in America in regard to Palestinians. And we'll look again at Israel's information war. With most Western leaders still resisting calls for a ceasefire, Israel's deadly bombardment of Gaza continues. And it increasingly appears to be focused on hospitals. Yes, hospitals. This footage shows a missile hitting the grounds of Shifa Hospital yesterday. A warning, it is distressing. As you could see in that footage, lots of people are still staying near hospitals because they believe they'll provide relative safety compared to the rest of Gaza City. But that doesn't mean they won't get their legs blown off, right? It's, it, it might be relatively more safe than the rest of Gaza City. It is still clearly not very safe at all. And the Shifa hospital, which you saw in that clip, is now being surrounded by Israeli ground troops. This is from Human Rights Watch. So they say, Israeli ground forces are encircling and moving deeper into Gaza City within two kilometers of Gaza's largest medical facility, Al-Shifa Hospital, where staff are overwhelmed by the number of patients amid a month-long blockade and heavy bombardment. With ongoing strikes and fighting nearby, we are gravely concerned about the well-being of thousands of civilians there, many children among them seeking medical care and shelter, including people on life support, those who lost limbs in airstrikes, and burn victims. 
Videos from inside Al Shifa's compound, verified by Human Rights Watch, show hundreds of people in the courtyard next to the emergency room, including sheltering civilians, medics tending to patients, emergency workers collecting dead bodies, and journalists. Satellite imagery shows many tents there. The World Health Organization has also made a statement today. Um, This is copy from The Guardian. So they write, Margaret Harris, a WHO spokesperson, said 20 hospitals in Gaza were out of action and that there was intense violence at Shifa. So I quote, I haven't got the detail on Al-Shifa, but we do know they are coming under bombardment, unquote, she said. Harris said there was also significant bombardment on Rantisi Hospital, the only hospital providing pediatric services in North Gaza. She said children had been receiving care such as dialysis and life support, things that you cannot possibly evacuate them safely with. The hospital was surrounded by Israeli armoured vehicles on Friday, according to the agency France Press News Agency. Um, At the same briefing, the UN's humanitarian office spokesperson said this, if there is hell on earth today, its name is Northern Gaza. It is a life of fear by day and darkness at night. And what you tell your children in such a situation, it's almost unimaginable that the fire they see in the sky is out to kill them. The Guardian provided this map showing the location of hospitals in Gaza City and Israeli front lines. As you can see, Israel's forces have cut off Gaza City from the south of the Gaza Strip, and they now appear to be circling it from the west. Rancini Hospital looks like it might be about to fall under Israeli control, and Al-Shifa Hospital also looks like it could soon be on the front line of fighting. You can also see the Indonesian hospital in the north of the Strip. This is terrifying footage shot from there last night. Israel claims the Indonesian hospital is now being used by Hamas and is empty of patients. And some British journalists agree the Telegraph's Paul Nuki is currently embedded with the IDF and he published this on Tuesday. Hospitals normally off limits in war loom large in this conflict. Hamas claims the Israeli military is heartlessly shelling medical facilities where civilians are sheltering and doctors are treating the many wounded. The IDF counters that the facilities are being cynically used as military bases by Hamas in a flagrant abuse of the conventions of war. Most agree that the Indonesian hospital is empty now of patients and is simply being used by Hamas to wage war. Taking it down with an airstrike to finish the fighting must surely be tempting, but the IDF knows that would hand its enemy a propaganda coup. Now, if that were the case, if it were the case that there were no civilians in that hospital, it was just Hamas fighters, then shelling near the Indonesian hospital, as you just saw there in that video, that could be more justifiable. But the NGO Medical Aid for Palestinians insist it's just not true. In a statement, they said this, Medical Aid for Palestinians, or MAP, has spoken to medics at the hospital who have provided photos and testimony confirming that it remains filled with patients and staff and is still providing services despite severe shortages of medicines, equipment and fuel. MAP is not aware of any evidence that the hospital has been used for military purposes and it retains its protected status under international law. This irresponsible reporting, and they're particularly referencing that Telegraph article there, endangers the lives of Palestinian civilians and undermines the protection of healthcare workers and 
facilities. Um, Matt provided this quote from the head of the hospital's surgical departments on Wednesday. And so that's the day after that article in The Telegraph was published. The hospital is overcrowded with patients and displaced people. We are looking for a way to make space and find empty beds to treat new patients. The hospital is full. There is no space anywhere, not in the reception, operation room, care facilities, and even all the hospital corridors. These were some of the photos that MAP provided, which they say were also taken on Wednesday. Um, Israel would have a tough time persuading the world these kids clearly suffering from severe burns are Hamas fighters. And these doctors you see here will be among the colleagues of the Doctors Without Borders nurse, Emily Callahan, whose interview with CNN we showed you on Thursday. You'll remember in that interview, she said that she checks her messages every morning to see if they are still alive, or she sends them a message every morning to see if they are still alive. Right? There are still people working in these hospitals. You'll note how Israel's line has changed from of course, we wouldn't have bombed a hospital. Do you remember that from, from a couple of weeks ago to now saying, well, there's no civilians there anyway, so we are free to bomb them, right? Both cases, very, very suspicious as a justification for what on the face of it is an appalling war crime. The message um, from Israel, of course, um, is that anyone, even those injured or sick, should move to the south of the Strip. And many are following those orders. This video was tweeted out by the IDF. They captioned it by saying this, quote, there is no ceasefire. There are tactical local pauses for humanitarian aid for Gazan civilians. These tactical pauses are limited in time and area. We are also providing humanitarian corridors for civilians in Gaza to temporarily move south to safer areas where they can receive humanitarian aid. And um, so Israel is bragging about Palestinians being forced to flee their homes. Right, they're saying this is us providing humanitarian corridors. But it has very dark associations for Palestinians. The majority of Gazans are descendants of refugees who were driven from their homes in the 1948 Nakba, never able to return. And Palestinians are fearful we are seeing the same process on repeat. Where can we go? This is a new wave of displacement. It's a new Nakba for the Palestinian people. It's like 1948. Where can we go? There are thousands of homeless people, including children and women, and people of all ages. Some have perished on the streets, while others lie on the ground helpless. Where can we go? As well as fears they will never be allowed to return home, Palestinians heading south face a more immediate threat, disease and hunger. Associated Press reports that even in the south of Gaza, taps are running dry due to lack of fuel. And they write this. Those who can't find or afford bottled water rely on salty, unfiltered well water, which doctors say causes diarrhea and serious gastrointestinal infections. I cannot recognize my own son, said Fadi Ijazi. The three-year-old has lost five kilograms in just two weeks, she said, and has been diagnosed with a chronic intestinal infection. Before the war, he had the sweetest baby face, Ijazi said. But now his lips are chapped, his face yellowish, his eyes sunken. They go on to write, at shelters, the lack of water makes it hard to maintain even basic hygiene, said Dr. Ali Al-Uhisi, who treats patients at one in Deir al-Bala. Lice and chickenpox have spread, he said, and on Wednesday morning alone, he treated four cases of meningitis. This week, he's also seen 20 cases of the liver infection, hepatitis A. What worries me is that I know I'm seeing a fraction of the total number of cases at the shelter, he said. For most ailments, there is no treatment. Zinc tablets and oral rehydration salts vanished the first week of the war. 
Frustrated patients have assaulted doctors, said Al-Ohisi, who described being beaten this week by a patient who needed a syringe. So what's the response of the Israelis? Sky questioned Colonel Moshe Tetro, who is head of the Coordination and Liaison Administration for Gaza. I was struck by what you said a moment ago, that there is, in your view, no humanitarian crisis in Gaza. That's your view, right? Yes. And how does that view match with the images that we are seeing coming out of the hospitals, coming out of the, the supermarkets? I mean, there is, there's no food in the supermarkets. There is a shortage of medical supplies in the hospitals. I mean, put aside uh, all of what you say about Hamas, the humanitarian situation on the ground, from what we have seen, from our cameras inside, there is no question a humanitarian crisis in there. Like I've said, and I will say it again, we are in wartime. Of course, of course, that there are a lot of humanitarian challenges. Of course, not only in Gaza, not only in Gaza, also in Israel. We are in war. I can say that we are allowing the entrance of food basically freely. Tens of trucks loaded with food is entering Gaza every day. Tens of trucks, as every NGO in the region tells us, is not sufficient to feed two and a half million people, 2.2 million people, right? And this idea Israel is still in a humanitarian crisis as well as Gaza. Well, guess what? The Gazans haven't turned off Israel's water supply. The Gazans haven't, told, to, haven't sort of blockaded any fuel from entering Israel. And the reason they haven't is because they can't, because Gaza doesn't occupy Israel. Israel occupies Gaza, right? So this tells us something about the relationship here between the two peoples, the Israelis and the Palestinians, either in the West Bank or in Gaza. The Israelis have the power to create a humanitarian crisis in Palestine, in the, in the West Bank and, and Gaza, in the occupied territories. They have the ability to do that because they have total control over these places, over these peoples. And so they say, we've still got a humanitarian crisis as well. No, you haven't got a humanitarian crisis because you're not starving your own people because you only like to starve other people. You know? You're starving the Palestinians. You're not starving yourselves. Aaron, I mean, to see these Israeli officials sort of stand up and say there is no humanitarian crisis in Gaza... What's the intention there? You know, we can we can see the images. We, we can see that there are people in the hospitals as they get bombed. We can see um, that there are people desperately walking miles, fleeing their homes, which have been bombed. How can they possibly expect anyone to believe there is not a humanitarian crisis in Gaza? Well, I suppose if you were to invert that question, Michael, I mean, why should they be honest? Because if you're being honest about war crimes and collective punishment, you'll end up in the Hague, and and that, frankly, is something which. I'm almost surprised we haven't really heard in mainstream politics. You know, in recent weeks, we've had this conversation about will any of the major parties support a ceasefire? Of course they won't. The whole point of the uni party is that we have foreign policy in this country directed by Washington, not by anybody in this country. That's why somebody like Keir Starmer is leading the Labour Party. Uh, but I actually think if we are having a sensible conversation, forget a ceasefire, which there should be consensus around, I actually think, which by the way, the polling, um, demonstrates that as well. I think if we were having a sensible conversation, uh, there would be calls for people to be facing prosecution for war crimes. I think that's inarguable. And so I think that's the, the, the most obvious answer in a way, Michael. Why are they denying this is happening? Well, if they were to admit it, uh, they'd probably, probably end up in front of the ICJ. Um, it is pretty horrific. The idea that you can kill 4,000 kids 
the idea that uh, at least one in 200 Gazans has been killed in the last month. One in 200 in one month. Um, there was an Israeli source that said 20,000 people had been killed. That's almost 1%. Uh, one in 100 Gazans would have been killed for that statistic to be correct. However, let's just work on the... The data, which is the most reliable, which is based upon, yes, numbers coming from out uh, from inside Gaza, rather, but which are verified because of the, the numbers that these people have given to them by the Israeli state. Uh, one in 200 people. How, how can you not call that a humanitarian crisis? Or anecdotally, when you hear about a three-year-old child losing five kilos of weight, um, the fact that every day, Michael, we have hundreds of women giving birth uh, without anesthetic we have premature children, which can't go into incubators because there's no electricity. Astonishing medieval barbarism, which could be avoided. It could be very easily avoided. Uh, and yet it's not. And of course, then the question is, well, why is it not? Is that intentional? If it is, as I've already said, those responsible would face very serious accusations of, of war crimes. And the scandalous thing about all of this, Michael, is that the Western political elite um, are cheering this on. Let's be honest. They're cheering this on. They will say, oh, well, we want a humanitarian pause, but you can't have a ceasefire. What? So you're allowed to, you're allowed to bomb hospitals and you're allowed to cut out the electricity for incubators. Um, and you're allowed to maim and murder children, which is happening, I think, approximately every 10 minutes right now in Gaza. You're allowed to do all of that, but only 18 out of 24 hours a day. I mean, it really shows you the 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 mire in which the Western political class, the political elites we have across Europe, who, by the way, only do what Washington tells them, with the possible exception right now of France, making slightly different noises, uh, but particularly with regards to the UK, it really shows you the mire that we are now in, and particularly Germany, I have to say, you know, I'm criticizing Britain because it's our country. My God, uh, the Germans, really extraordinary uh, abject disgracefulness coming from people like Schultz and uh, von der Leyen in recent weeks. Unacceptable, inexcusable. Uh, and I think realistically in 20, 25, 30 years, uh, the way that these people will be talked about in the history books will be on a par with those who were apologists for apartheid in South Africa. Yeah, I mean... You know, if, if if obviously you know, apartheid. Let's let's not belittle the 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 terror and the horror that was apartheid South Africa. But one thing they never did was was bomb South African town, but you know, bomb towns inhabited by black South Africans. Right? This idea that they would have you know just bombed people in open air prisons. You know, they had banter stands as well in South Africa. They didn't bomb them. Right? It was a terrible, abusive, violent regime. But this idea that you've, you've got this, this population in an open-air prison and you were bombing them with the, the most high-tech weaponry available in the world, right? It's, it's just beyond foul. And we have so many people in our sort of political establishment just pretending it's completely normal. You brought up the numbers of dead there, there Aaron. So according to the Gaza Health Ministry, um, there are now over 11,000 people who have died. Um, they, you know, they admit, they say that's not going to be the full total because there are still lots of people under rubble. We showed, um, I don't know if it was last week or the week before, Joe Biden saying, well, we can't trust those numbers because the Gaza Health Ministry is Hamas run, right? Now, um, the Americans have basically come out and said, well, their intelligence is telling them it's probably more than what the Gaza Health Ministry tells them. It's probably more than 11,000 people who are dead. As you said, Aaron, there was a sort of um, briefing or a, a leak or 
um, whatever to an Israeli newspaper on the weekend that suggested 20,000 people had already been killed. And, you know, if, if you look at, we, we can see the physical damage already, right? Because you've got satellites or drones. We know how many buildings have been destroyed. And if you look at what Gaza City currently looks like, and you think about the population of that, that strip, right? It's, it's not surprising that way more than 11,000 people could have been killed by now, right? And every day we don't have a ceasefire, more people will get killed. Every day we don't have a ceasefire, more people are going to get gastrointestinal diseases and more kids are going to have their lives at risk because they're getting meningitis or liver failure, right? And then you still got politicians who think they're taking the moral high ground by saying, no, let's let this continue just a little bit longer. And we said earlier in the week, Joe Biden was saying, oh yeah, his source is close to the president saying, oh, he is going to call for a ceasefire at some point, have no doubt, just in a few weeks' time, just in a few weeks' time. Just after 15,000 more people have been killed, just after a few more kids have life-changing injuries, right? That's what that means. Also, Israel can increase the power they have in the region, which is already completely dominant. Let's go to our next story. For four weeks now, Israel has been relentlessly bombing 2.2 million people in an open-air prison camp. And thanks to social media and brave journalists on the ground, the appalling toll of Israel's actions are being broadcast around the world. Israel thus knows they risk losing the battle for global public opinion, and they're fighting back with lies. Afir Gendelman is a spokesperson for Benjamin Netanyahu. He tweeted this on Thursday. The Palestinians are fooling the international media and public opinion. Don't fall for it. See for yourselves how they fake injuries and evacuating injured civilians all in front of the cameras. Pallywood gets busted again. Now, this is the video attached to that tweet. So you can see there's a girl that looks like she's been hit by an airstrike. But as you zoom out, you can see this is actually a film set. So there are lots of, of extras and actors and, and someone playing the fiddle or, or, or the violin and a makeup artist, right? So clearly, um, this is a film set. So he is saying this is an example of Gazans who are already under siege and being pummeled by airstrikes, making up injuries. You know, there's there's some part of of Gaza where um, it's safe enough to 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 make a pop up film set and pretend to have injuries instead of really having them. Obviously, that's completely implausible. And a community note added to Gendelman's tweet, community note which made that clear. So a sort of clarification underneath it. The video is the backstage of the short film The Reality, shot in Lebanon by Lebanese actors to support the population of Gaza. And they've um, given these fact checks. Um, I've gone through those. You know, That is true. Everyone's accepted that to be true. Um, Aaron, what is going on here, right? So, you know, it, I was thinking about this and obviously, you know, Israel wants to muddy the water. Uh, they want to make it seem as if they're not necessarily guilty for all of these horrible things we're seeing um, on our on our video screen, so they want to sort of sow some doubt that you know it, it might actually be people who are who are pretending to be injured. But this seems so obviously ridiculous, so obviously fake from an Israeli official, a spokesperson, right, for the prime minister. That I'm wondering if they're sort of doing the a tactic which sort of in the West is associated with Vladimir Putin, which is just flooding the airways with shit. Right, they don't yeah. really expect anyone to believe this. Um, they don't really care if they're pumping out obvious lies because what they want to do is create this impression where there are so many lies that, that, that no one knows if anything's real or fake and they basically give up trying to distinguish. They just say, well, That's we can't right. believe anything because everything's nonsense. I don't think that uh, that Prime Minister's spokesman was necessarily hoping to be believed. I think he's just hoping to you know, flood the airways with shit. 
Yeah, I think there are basically, for many of these people, Michael, I think there are basically no conditions under which they would accept, yeah, we made a mistake, we've done something wrong, we're going to rectify it. I think it's partly the balanced strategy of flood the zone with shit. But I also think, Michael, right now, the sort of the intellectual thought world within which the most hardcore Israeli ultra-nationalists are presently operating, which of course is, is a great many people, particularly in a, in a moment of crisis and, and war, uh, is to is to basically, you know, talking about echo chambers, is to basically disbelieve anything at odds with your worldview. And this conspiracy theory around Pallywood, it's crazy. It is absolutely crazy when we have reliable sources telling us at least 10,000 people have died. As you said a moment ago, we could be looking at 20,000 deaths in Gaza, which is about 1% of the overall population. 1% in one month. People don't need to go around recording films and getting out their gimbals and their iPhones and uh, their, you know, their, their, their GH5s. There's enough pain, anguish, and death to go around to capture it on film. Uh, but it, I think it can, can be explained, Michael, by the isolation uh, with which the Israeli state now exists. There is soft support from Europe. But on a bunch of UN um, resolutions, motions, etc., very often you'll just see two or three states voting against something or voting for something, and it is literally the United States, Israel, sometimes Ukraine, sometimes Britain, but a very select uh, group of countries. Often you will just see the US and Israel. And I do think there's an element here, Michael, which is the right wing of the Israeli political class uh, which is Likud. It's been an election-winning machine for a really long time, and everyone to their right, um, I think now has basically created a parallel reality in, in which they live. So I'd say it's a bit different to Russia in so much as that is partly an elite-led project, not just by Putin, but people around Putin, people in the Kremlin, people in Moscow, who, who are fabricating an alternative reality often, not just in regards to Ukraine, it preceded that too. Uh, political assassinations in the West is one example. Uh, I think in Israel it's something different. I think it is actually more of a national popular project here where reality really consists in what they want to see, what they want to hear. And because that's reaffirmed and um, echoed back to them, by actually a pretty large and pretty strong right-wing media ecology in the United States, and here I'm not just referring to Fox News, but also people like, you know, Ben Shapiro, the New York Post, uh, a bunch of other people too. I think actually it's it's quite easy for those in power in Israel, uh, or just generally on the right of politics in Israel, to to believe their own nonsense, to be blowing smoke up their own backsides. Uh, so I think it's similar to Putin, like you say, or or Bannon, flooding the zone with shit. I think there's something else going on too, though. Yeah, I mean, it's not just people to Netanyahu's right as well. As you're going to see, it's also people who are supposedly his centrist opposition who are getting involved in this kind of thing. Um, so as we've just said, Israel has falsely accused Palestinians of making up atrocities. But when it comes to journalists working on the ground in Gaza, they've done something even more dangerous. They've accused them of being terrorists. Now, an Israeli NGO called Honest Reporting published this article on Wednesday. Um, the article began like this. 
But on October the 7th, Hamas terrorists were not the only ones who documented the war crimes they had committed during their deadly rampage across southern Israel. Some of their atrocities were captured by Gaza-based photojournalists working for the Associated Press and Reuters news agencies, whose early morning presence at the breached border area raises serious ethical questions. What were they doing there so early on what would ordinarily have been a quiet Saturday morning? Was it coordinated with Hamas? Did the respectable wire services which published their photos approve of their presence inside enemy territory, together with the terrorist infiltrators? Did the photojournalists who freelance for other medias like CNN and the New York Times notify these outlets? Judging from the pictures of lynching, kidnapping and storming of an Israeli kibbutz, it seems like the border has been breached not only physically, but also journalistically. Right, so they're basically saying these, these journalists are terrorists. Right? The article went on to name a number of Palestinian photojournalists working for mainstream outlets, asking whether they were journalists or, quote, infiltrators. Now, these are big accusations. Honest reporting is essentially questioning whether these journalists should be considered part of the press or part of Hamas. The implication, given Israel wants to destroy Hamas, is that they would then be fair game. They would be fair targets. And Israeli politicians have agreed. Danny Danon is Israel's representative to the UN. You might have seen him with those yellow stars on um, in the UN recently. Now, he tweeted this. Israel's internal security agency announced that they will eliminate all participants of the October 7th massacre. The quote-unquote photojournalists who took part in recording the assault will be added to that list. They're essentially saying anyone who was there, anyone who was filming what happened on October the 7th is now fair game. They will be eliminated, right? Benny Gantz is a supposedly centrist alternative to Netanyahu who currently sits on Israel's war cabinet. He said this, journalists found to have known about the massacre and still chose to stand as idle bystanders while children were slaughtered are no different than terrorists and should be treated as such. So essentially he's saying again, these journalists, if they were present when terrorist activity was being carried out, they are also terrorists and therefore should be killed by the military. Now the newspapers who have published photos taken by the accused freelancers have responded with outrage. This was the response from the New York Times. The accusation that anyone at the New York Times had advanced knowledge of the Hamas attacks or accompanied Hamas terrorists during the attacks is untrue and outrageous. It is reckless to make such allegations, putting our journalists on the ground in Israel and Gaza at risk. The Times has extensively covered the October 7th attacks and the war with fairness, impartiality and an abiding understanding of the complexities of the conflict. They go on. The advocacy group Honest Reporting has made vague allegations about several freelance photojournalists working in Gaza, including Youssef Massoud. Though Youssef was not working for the Times on the day of the attack, he has since done important work for us. There is no evidence for Honest Reporting's insinuations. Our review of his work shows that he was doing what photojournalists always do during major news events, documenting the tragedy as it unfolded. So what has been Honest Reporting's response to this wave of threats to kill journalists which they have unleashed? Well, they said they don't in fact have any evidence for their allegations and were simply asking questions. This is from the Associated Press. Gil Hoffman, Executive Director of Honest Reporting and a former reporter for the Jerusalem Post, admitted Thursday the group had no evidence to back up that suggestion. He said he was satisfied with subsequent explanations from several of these journalists that they did not know about the, the October 7th attacks. They were legitimate questions to be asked, Hoffman said, despite the name Honest Reporting. He said, we don't claim to be a news organisation. Aaron, I mean, this is really shocking, isn't it? You've got very high up figures in the Israeli government, the UN representative, 
Benny Gantz, someone who's in the wall cabinet, as I said earlier, he's supposed to be the centrist alternative to Netanyahu, essentially saying if you were a photojournalist who was present on October the 7th, we might kill you and that would be legitimate. We are talking, Michael, about politicians in Israel making threats of extrajudicial killings, assassinations of journalists. That's where we now are. And that's a very dangerous line to be crossing, Michael, right? Where would those happen? In Israel? Okay, well, what if there's a freelancer um, beyond Israel's borders? Terrifying. Terrifying. You have people that are potentially working for British papers who may have their life at risk for doing their job. Now, these are freelancers, generally speaking, in, in the occupied territories, but the, the line here is clearly very ambiguous. Now, people listening to this might be thinking, who are honest reporting? Never heard of them. They are uh, an advocacy organization that is um, very much not about honest reporting. Their job, fundamentally, is about trying to shape and direct and craft the media conversation in such a way as that it maximizes um, Israeli supportive spin. Uh, they do this through sending in lots of emails, making lots of complaints. Uh, and this is described by one journalist as the electric fence approach to public relations. Very clever. Uh, what you do is, if anybody makes any kind of comment that is critical about Israel, you get a little shock and you don't do it again. Um, and we've seen this repeatedly in peacetime coming from organizations like Honest Reporting. For instance, the British Medical Journal in the early 2000s published a report in regards to what was going on with Palestinian children. Then there was an orchestrated effort to make complaints uh, in order to undermine what was being said by the BMJ. Uh, we see that time after time after time. So it's not honest reporting. I mean, they should rename it dishonest reporting or inaccurate reporting because they're not trying to find an objective truth and the facts of the matter. They're trying to spin absolutely everything in such a way that it favors Israel. And to go back to the point made previously, Michael, about um, Putin, this is of a piece with that entirely. You know, Vladimir Putin wishes he had organizations like that which could help shape the debate in Western liberal democracies favoring Russia. You know, we're now in a place where potentially you could have somebody freelancing for a UK British outlet, maybe even a British national, facing threats of, of, of being murdered by the Israeli uh, state, or Israeli politicians, like you say, Gantz is in, the, is in the war cabinet right now. And I wonder how far this is going to go. Because right now, honest reporting will send in a bunch of complaints to the BBC or ITV or Sky, and that, make no mistake, absolutely absolutely shapes uh, the nature of their coverage of these things they listen to them not not unduly they don't do whatever they say but you know somebody will say something which isn't quite accurate or maybe is a slightly imprudent way of phrasing things hundreds dozens of complaints okay we don't do that again or we won't report on that again you know it it, it forecloses the kinds of choices that journalists make in reporting israel palestine well if journalists working for you at the BBC or The Guardian or Sky or The Times or wherever are being threatened by the Israeli government because of work done by honest reporting, then why on earth would you listen to these fanatics? Deeply, deeply shocking. And like, like I've said many times, Michael, we refer to Israel as, you know, the most democratic country in the Middle East. Okay, they have universal suffrage. They actually have a very proportional electoral system. But we have to be honest here. There is no other country in the West that behaves like this, that has organizations like Honest Reporting trying to seed misinformation 
in places like the US, in the UK, Canada, Australia, etc. This is very unique to Israel. And so I think we do need to start talking about that particular country um, with a phrase, which you don't really hear very often these days, but I think it very much describes what's going on with Israel, and that was the case before October 7th too, which is it is a rogue state. Clearly, it is a rogue state. Now, that doesn't just mean it ignores international law protocols. Uh, it doesn't just mean that, you know, um, we have all of the norms and conventions of just law discarded uh, by their military. It also means operations like honest reporting. These are not normal processes, organizations, people, arguments, ways of being that you would normally um, find commensurate with a Western democracy. So I think that's a language we need to start using, a rogue state, a rogue actor. And this is of a part with that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right in this situation. And I suppose for more evidence that we're looking at a rogue state here, let's look at one more short clip. And um, because the Israeli police also seem to be targeting Western journalists. At 11.48.52, as one of the civilian vehicles departs, the soldiers spot our cameraman. As we go to leave, two shots ring out. What's going on? It's fine, it's fine, it's fine. So that was a report by Channel 4 News, right? And I saw that sort of get shared on Twitter because people were saying it was reported as if it was unremarkable that they got shot at by soldiers, by Israeli soldiers, shooting at Channel 4 News. It's also worth noting where that was. That was in the West Bank. So whenever people talk about, oh, Israel, they've got this right to defend themselves, they have to try and root out Hamas. These Israeli soldiers are in the West Bank. Hamas are not in the West Bank. And uh, Channel 4 News actually did this. It was, it was a good report basically, about the the shooting dead of a man with learning difficulties who'd, who'd thrown a couple of stones at the soldiers. He was so far away that the stones would not have got to the soldiers, so there was no risk to anyone's life, but they shot him dead. And those soldiers in the West Bank, they are not defending Israel. They have nothing to do with the defense of Israel. What they are defending is settlements, illegal settlements. They have been illegal under international law, ever since, well, they they started from 1976 onwards, when, or 1967 onwards, sorry, when Israel um, occupied the West Bank and Gaza. They have been expanding ever since then. They have been illegal under international law ever since then. And you have a whole military infrastructure in the West Bank, which divides up um, Palestinians into basically bantustans, right? And you've got this, this, this whole military infrastructure, this deadly military, military infrastructure, which ruins Palestinians' lives just to protect the illegal settlements, which are lived in by generally fairly right-wing Israelis. It, it, there is no way to describe that other than a rogue state. An illegal occupation, which has continued now for 56 years, and it's, it, it's, it's defended by soldiers who don't just shoot at Palestinian civilians, they shoot at international journalists who come to report what they're doing. Right, That is a rogue state, yet everyone in our political establishment still treats them like a normal country, a normal country, a normal ally. Of course, we will give them unconditional military aid because they have a right to defend themselves. And they, they look like us. You know, We can kind of imagine ourselves as Israelis. They're part of the West, so they get to do what they want. They're on our team. That's what it amounts to. Let's go to some comments. MRC on Super Chat. You will be a great dad, Aaron. Um, I very much agree. It's very lovely. Super chat. Very excited um, to to see you in your fatherhood mode, Aaron. I'm looking forward to it, Michael. I have to say, 
look, the child's not arrived yet. And who, who knows? I'm one of these people. I'm a bit of a catastrophist. You know, I always think about the worst. Uh, the anxiety is already there. Maybe that's part of being a parent as well. It's already come before the, parent, uh, the child's even arrived. But I, I really, Michael, even just thinking about this baby that I have, you know, yesterday it was hiccuping in my, in my wife's stomach. I could hear it with my hand. I, I honestly don't understand how any parent um, could cheer on what is going on in Gaza. I, I can't get my head around it. The idea that 4,000 children, innocent children, um, could be murdered in this way. Uh, you're looking at a territory, 2.2 million people, around 40% of them are children. I think about 50% are 18 or younger. Um, that, to me, has, has, has meant a whole other layer to this. That's not to say if you don't have children, you don't think about these things. Of course not. Um, but seeing the small children suffering the, the way that they are, uh, I'm sure I'll have a very different perspective on life. I think it's already sort of begun, really. Um, but it, it does make me think, if you have kids and you respond like that, who the hell are you? What's going on inside your head? I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with the racist dehumanization of those child victims, right? If you, if you don't think of them as, as real children, as children like your own, then you can dehumanize them and sort of see their deaths as normal, which is the subject of our next section. In the Gaza war, people of largely Muslim faith are being bombed, starved and driven from their homes. And unsurprisingly, that means it's brought a lot of extreme Islamophobes out of the woodwork. This is Douglas Murray speaking to US talking head Dave Rubin. These are enemies within. Uh, we have our own ones in Britain like this. Um, and as I say, what you have to work out at some point where you're being, uh, where your system is being gamed. And it's being gamed in America. It's being gamed much more, and it has been gamed for much longer in the UK. But I mean, you see it in things like, for instance, the first minister of Scotland, Hamza Yusuf. He's married to a Palestinian. She's a particularly um, uh, nasty piece of work who has been on the record before smearing the Jewish state in all sorts of ways. Her parents are in Gaza. Uh, Hamza Yusuf, as far as I can see, is not the first minister of Scotland. He's become the first minister of Gaza, or an ambassador for Gaza, or something like that. Yeah. He thinks Scotland's too white. He thinks also that Scotland should take in the people of Gaza as refugees. In the, in the Scotland of my youth, I think we would have been amazed at the idea that by the year 2023, we would have a first minister calling for the importing of people from one of the world's most radical statelets, uh, not yet states, encampments, cities, strips. But people like Hamza Yusuf have, um, I said carefully, but have infiltrated our system. He does not seem to be much in, in bothered by the situation of the Scottish people, the people of Glasgow, who have one of the lowest uh, life expectancy not just in Britain, but anywhere in Europe. He does not seem to care about that, or if he does, he does nothing about it. But my word, if you look at his social media proclamations and everything else, you would think that he was indeed First Minister of Gaza. It's just so racist, right? He's infiltrated our system. Right? He, he was elected leader of the SNP, who got the most votes in a democratic election to become the largest party in Hollywood. He is now the first minister. Infiltration has nothing to do with anything. He was democratically elected. He has a lot more legitimacy than Douglas Murray does, speaking there like this sort of racist drunk. Right? The, the amount of hatred in his voice when he's talking about Hamza Yusuf's wife, right? a particularly nasty person. It's just despicable. First minister of Gaza as well. If, if people are on Twitter sort of calling um, 
Keir Starmer, the first minister of Israel, they would immediately get called out as being anti-Semitic, right? Immediately. And this guy, first minister of Gaza, and especially if anyone said that about a, you know, a Jewish politician, they said they were first minister of, of Israel, they would definitely be called anti-Semitic. He's saying this about someone with connections to Gaza. Obviously, we've talked about Hamza Yusuf on, on this show before. He has spoken with such even-handed empathy when it comes to the crisis in Gaza, to the bombardment of Gaza, that I have the utmost respect for him. And then not only to be smeared, his family to be smeared, but then told he has infiltrated British society when he was elected to his position is just despicable. It's disgusting. Now, one might think statements like that would mean people in polite society would be wary of associating with Douglas Murray. But three days after that video was published, the Jewish Chronicle published an article by Murray. And this is the headline. Why must Jews watch their backs as London mobs cheer? And in the piece, he wrote this. This is one occasion when saying that some people are worse than the Nazis is not hyperbole. Average members of the SS and other killing units of Hitler's were rarely proud of their average day's work. Very few felt that shooting Jews in the back of the head all day and kicking up their bodies into pits was where their own lives had meant to end up. Many spent their evenings getting blind drunk to try to forget. Nazi commanders had to worry about staff morale. When the war ended, the Nazis tried to pretend that Treblinka and other death camps never existed. Compare this with the behaviour of Hamas on October the 7th. As those of us who have viewed the raw footage from the day have seen and heard up for ourselves, these terrorists were not just pleased with what they were doing, they were elated. They spent the whole time screaming Allahu Akbar with delight. So we have here in a Jewish newspaper, I think the oldest Jewish newspaper in the world, a non-Jew who happens to be very right-wing, arguing that the Nazis, who killed six million Jews, at least felt bad when they did it. Right? They, they, they still had some sort of morals to them because they felt bad when they did it. Now, of course, there's little evidence that they did feel bad when they did it. The, the Holocaust absolutely did involve the celebration of racist violence. Did Murray think that Kristallnacht involved people sort of moving around, looking at their feet, upset and reluctantly smashing up synagogues and rounding up Jews? No. And this is the most bit ridiculous bit. They didn't hide the truth about concentration camps because they were ashamed. It was because they didn't want to get tried for war crimes, right? It wasn't suddenly that, oh, oh, maybe whoopsie-daisy, maybe it was, it was a mistake to kill millions of Jews in concentration camps. Should we, should we cover that up because we're a bit embarrassed? They, uh, they were trying to avoid getting the death sentence in a war crimes tribunal, right? It's just so ahistorical. And for that to be in the Jewish Chronicle by a guy who has said that about the Scottish First Minister three days prior, it is just, it's, it's difficult to believe. I mean, of course, the Nazis and Hamas in another way are incomparable, whatever you think of their aims or tactics, right? And I think much of what was done on October the 7th was horrific and unjustifiable. And Hamas have many aims I completely disagree with. But they are part of a movement with a legitimate grievance. Israel has been illegally occupying Palestine for 56 years, and Palestinians have a right to resist that. The Nazis, on the other hand, right, they, they weren't part of any movement by any understanding where there was a legitimate grievance or just cause. They were trying to exterminate an ethnic minority. Their genocidal project was based on a belief in their own racial supremacy. And by using the entire force of a sophisticated military state, they got close to wiping out all of Europe's Jews. It was the worst genocide in history. Hamas and the Nazis are incomparable. The comparison is offensive. And we've seen more of Douglas Murray because he's gone to the Middle East to cosplay 
as a war reporter. And he brought up the Nazis again in an interview with Piers Morgan on Talk TV, where he was speaking from close to the Gaza border. I can tell you one thing. The comparison between Hamas and the Nazis is insufficient. And I... Sorry, there's an incoming... Uh, incoming. Get safe, Douglas. Come, come, Are you okay, Douglas? It came from the other direction, so... Okay, anyhow, we're okay. Are you okay? Um, let's, let's just... Yeah, 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 it's fine. Sorry, it was, it, was a, it was a rocket coming. It looked like it was just going to land on us here. Which, which way okay. was that rocket coming from? Okay. Was it coming from Gaza or from Israel? Yes, it seemed to be coming from Gaza, so... Yeah, it's fine. It's okay. It's been happening all day. Um, let me just I mean, finish just, this point. Just, just before we go on, um, Douglas, Atman, how does that make sure. you? How does that make you feel? What just happened there? I mean, it's. Uh, I'm. I'm a little used to it. I was in Ukraine last year and was in Kherson and uh, uh, Odessa and uh, Mykolaiv and when the Russians were shelling it. So I'm a little used to it. Um, uh, but just if I can just finish this point, you know, this, so there's a lot of banging going on. But anyway, we'll keep going. Gaza was in the background in that clip and the rocket appeared to come from in front of Douglas Murray. So I'm not sure if I would trust his assertion that it was a rocket coming from the Palestinian side. But either way, cosplaying as a war reporter is pretty gross. Palestinian journalists in Gaza are being killed at a rate of one a day, one a day. Douglas Murray's job is just to stand on a relatively peaceful hill overlooking the human catastrophe in Gaza, all while dehumanizing its victims and humanizing the literal Nazis. Um, you know, Aaron, we try not to spend too much time on this show just talking about ridiculous things that awful right-wingers have said. But this is a guy who's been on talk TV. This was published in the Jewish Chronicle, completely bizarre. And what he has said is just so extreme. And, yeah. you know, I, I don't want to tar everyone who's been supporting Israel over the past four weeks to say, you know, they're all the same as Douglas Murray. I don't like this habit of sort of taking um, the most extreme person from a movement and saying that means that everyone believes that. But I do think there is an obvious connection, which is the only way I think you can look at the death, the destruction being rained upon children in Gaza, children in Gaza, is if you do employ a, a racist dehumanization of Palestinians. I, I don't really see the way that you can really do that, the, the way that you can emotionally live with what Israel are doing if you don't have some sort of racial hierarchy in your head. So while Douglas Murray is, is clearly an extreme example, especially in terms of Israel's cheerleaders in the West, I'm not sure what, what discourse is like in Israel at the moment, but in terms of discourse here, he's extreme. But I don't think it's completely alien from other things that are going on. And I suppose the evidence of that is that he gets published, right? It, it wasn't the case that the Jewish Chronicle thought this is so extreme. Of course, we're not going to publish this sort of soft defense of the humanity of Nazis in the Jewish Chronicle, but they went and did it because it, it served an argument which, which helped to dehumanize and vilify the Palestinians. Well, he's being published in what are ultimately quite marginal outlets, Michael. So the New York Post is, you know, just right-wing, batshit publication in the United States. He's there on 
uh, Talk TV, uh, Murdoch owned outlet. And of course, Jewish Chronicle is a, is a marginal newspaper in terms of circulation, it's politics and, uh, and its, its uh, relationship to um, IPSO and media regulations. Media regulations has had a significant number of um, complaints over the years, uh, outsized number given its readership. Uh, this comparison as well, Michael, not just to the Nazis, but the SS, I find really extraordinary. Uh, and I think it's intentionally provocative. And I think you're right. It serves a dual purpose. So firstly, how can you legitimize potentially killing 1% of a civilian population in, in one month, killing 4,000 kids at least? How can you? You can't. Unless, of course, you say, well, no, these people are actually worse than the Nazis. And not just any old Nazis, Michael, the SS. The people that were building the stationary uh, sort of gas chambers, right? Um, Dr. Mengele, Joseph Mengele, who is doing human experiments at Birkenau on Jewish children. He was amputating Jewish children, infecting them with diseases to see what happened, removing organs from them while they were alive. I know this sounds like I'm making it up. I'm not. The definition of a monster, of pure, unadulterated evil. He was in the SS. You know, the people that were manning the concentration camps, Waffen SS. So the worst of the worst within the Third Reich. And he's saying Hamas is worse than these people. And I think that level of hyperbole isn't an accident. I think he knows exactly what he is doing. He has to reach for the, the worst possible analog in European history, in the whole of European history, which I think is what the SS are. I think that's the worst possible example you would give of unadulterated evil in order to um, add a veneer of legitimacy to what's going on. Um, and like you say, it's part of the dehumanization. I think, yes, that's partly racial and it's partly political because I think one of the, the few shared, agreed points of historical fact amongst modern Europeans is that you know the Third Reich was bad and the SS were the worst of the worst. Uh, but the idea that a child who is bombed and dies in its bed is somehow worse than Dr. Joseph Mengele. I mean, it just stretches the, the boundaries of, of, of credulity for even the most rabid um, Islamophobes. Uh, and that's why he's not being published and saying these things, these particular lines and these words, even in outlets like the Telegraph or the Times or the Mail. I mean, that is, that is an extraordinary thing to say and I think actually any, any sensible person, particularly any person who lived through all that, would find it not just distasteful, but disgusting. And I think he is a disgusting man. And people who watch this show, who know me, who know what Navarro stands for, will know fully well, I enjoy talking to conservatives. I genuinely enjoy talking to people I disagree with. I genuinely enjoy talking to people with a very different perspective on life. I like talking to Peter Hitchens. Sometimes I do GB News with him. We will have a good chat before and after the show. I enjoy talking to him. He's read books I've never even heard of and would never randomly think of wanting to read. I think, oh, that's kind of interesting. Okay. Oh, you're saying there's a Zionist history of the, of the Nakba. You know, he would say, pinch of salt, but it's very different to perhaps what you've read. Okay, Peter, thanks. With Douglas Murray, Michael, it's not just somebody who I politically disagree with. I've never heard in more than, what, 10, 12, maybe even 15 years of seeing this guy in, in, in circulation certainly more than a decade, I've never heard him say a nice thing about anyone. He's one of the most nasty, spiteful, sadistic people 
in in the public sphere in this country. Sadistic. I don't use that word lightly. I've never heard him say a nice thing about anyone. He's nasty, horrible, uh, and, and, and it just oozes from him this this sense of just misanthropy. Misanthropy. I can see no redeeming qualities in the man. And I say that as a Christian. I meant to I meant to see that in everyone. And and frankly, I almost always do. But he sees a, a he seems a uniquely odious and horrid individual. And I think it says something that actually he seems to have risen to the top over the last several weeks in making these public apologia for what's going on uh, in Israel on the behalf of the IDF. I think, firstly, not many people would do it. But I think now he's really he's really in his element. You know, you want somebody to discard the humanity of uh, Palestinian children? I'm your guy. Uh, and I think it says something as well, Michael, about the direction of the public sphere in this country. You know, the fact that he's on talk TV, uh, the fact he's in the New York Post, okay, that's not the UK, but it's owned by Murdoch. And I think Murdoch, if he had his way, would give somebody like Douglas Murray, he, re- he appears very often on talk TV, um, I think he would give somebody like Douglas Murray a show. That is a very concerning thing for me, because like I say, it's not just about political disagreement. I can handle that. Often I'll have a political disagreement with people and I, I recognize they're still good people. They still look after their kids. They're still a good friend. They can still make other people in their lives happy. I, I, I'm genuinely at a kind of existential level. Who does this man make happy? What are his redeeming features? It's just a, it, his life just seems a, a perennial exercise in generating hatred, division, and animosity. The thing he said about uh, the Scottish First Minister as well, and his wife, I mean, what, do you know them particularly well? You know, I would never, I would never talk about somebody like that if I didn't have a decent read on who they were. Even Douglas Murray, you know, if we met, I, I would hope that I'm wrong, that my mind would be changed. But he is, I think, a uniquely malevolent figure in, in the British media landscape, Michael. I think that's really saying something quite extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, I, I just want to say for accuracy, accuracy's sake, so I think you sort of suggested that he was comparing the SS to Palestinian Gazan children. I, I imagine he would say, no, I was comparing them to Hamas. It's very different. He, uh, he presumably wouldn't um, compare Gazan children to the SS. But I, I do think this is all part and parcel of dehumanizing the Palestinians, even if that wouldn't have been the exact comparison that, that he did make. Um, I want to show you one more clip of Douglas Murray. My apologies for that. Um, and that's because he repeats what has become a common talking point on the far right. They come up with this idea, for instance, that there are indigenous people who were, who were, who were moved out. The Palestinians are indigenous people, and they were moved out by the Jews, the Israelis, the Zionists. And this version is, of course, a replay of that version of American history, which is there were the idyllic, Edenic first populations of America, the indigenous peoples, and then people from Europe came, the wicked Spanish and Italians and Portuguese and the French and even the British. Um, come and do their thing. And so they they just put this version of history onto the Middle East. To those people, I would say, fine, you can do that if you want. Now let's do Britain. Want to play that game? You sure? (laughs) You better not get the British started. But that's Tell me more, Douglas. What do you mean? You want to play the indigenous people own the land first game and the other people should fuck off? Well, it's 60 years of mass migration into the UK. Who are the indigenous peoples of the UK? People who've been here the longest. Who are the settlers? 
Who are the illegal settlers in Britain? Oh, well, that would be the people who've arrived. Does anyone want to go there? I would be happy to go there because the situations are so fundamentally different, right? It's just ridiculous to say they are not. And again, I say the reason we're showing you this is because I have had a bunch of idiots on on on, on Twitter sort of reply to my my post such as this. Oh, so you're against illegal settlements and then what about people migrating to Britain? Well, if people were migrating to Britain and were bullying people out of their homes, were forcing people out of their houses at gunpoint, right, so they could take them over themselves and then excluding people from towns on, on the basis of their ethnicity. If people were doing that, I'd have a problem with it, right? I, I would have a problem with, with anyone moving to Britain and saying, oh, we actually have an exclusive right to this town. You have to move, right? We're going to force you out. We're going to expel you. If, if people were doing that, they would be settlers, and it would be a problem. What we have in Britain is we have people who, who move here, and they don't, make us, they don't make the people already here do anything differently. Right? Yeah, they, they change the culture a bit. I, I personally love that. But they are not settlers because they are not trying to take the land for themselves and expel other people from that land. And in the case of Israel, you, you've got people who, who are settling that land and then expelling people from that land explicitly on the base of race and ethnicity. We're saying, they say, this is now Jewish land. And if you're not Jewish, you, you have to piss off, right? You, you can't be in this town. You can't even be near this town. We're going to have our soldiers point their guns at you, right? If that was happening in Britain, I would have a problem with it. It's not. The tensions Murray seems keen to provoke are similar, in fact, though, to the effort being made by Home Secretary Suella Bravman. And she has spoken positively of Murray in the past. In a September debate on Prevent, she told Parliament this. People like my right honourable friend, the member of North East Somerset, Rhys Mogg, and Douglas Murray express mainstream, insightful, and perfectly decent political views. People may disagree with them, but in no way are they extremists. Now, by calling Murray's views insightful and decent, she's going way beyond a defense of free speech there, right? That is not just saying, oh, people might say things that are offensive, but we should defend their right to say it. Fine. She's saying, no, it's decent and insightful. It's also not, though, surprising. It's Murray's language of civilizational struggle that allows Suella Bravman to brand half a million people calling for a ceasefire in Gaza as taking part in a hate march. And on that front, Britain's press have been happy to play ball. On Tuesday, the Daily Mail splashed this headline on their paper, Poppy Seller 78, punched by protesters. And they say veteran tells mail of station attackers, leaders of Gaza March on Armistice Day, refuse police plea to cancel. Now that would be very worrying, wouldn't it? It'd be awful if there were protesters for any cause punching a 78-year-old man selling poppies. However, Following that article, the British Transport Police released this statement. Two separate offences were reported to British Transport Police in relation to an incident at Edinburgh Waverley Station on Saturday the 4th of November. The first incident was reported to us of a racially aggravated public order offence, which is not linked to the protest at the station. Detectives have arrested a 41-year-old man from Airdrie, North Lanarkshire, in connection with this incident. He is currently in police custody. The second is a reported assault on a poppy store seller whilst a demonstration was taking place at the station. Detectives have extensively monitored CCTV and spoken with key identified witnesses. There is insufficient evidence to take the investigation further at this time. We have no reason to believe that poppy sellers are at any risk or being intentionally targeted. That, to me, 
essentially reads as a polite way of saying it didn't happen, right? They, they've checked CCTV. As we know, there's lots of CCTV in, in in train stations. If something happens, it's likely it will get picked up on CCTV. But not only have they said there is insufficient evidence to take the investigation further at this time, they've also said we have no reason to believe that poppy sellers are at any risk or being intentionally targeted. They've got no reason to believe they're being intentionally targeted. Now, obviously, someone's testimony, if it's credible, is reason to believe it. So if they've got no reason to believe it, that suggests to me they have judged that testimony was not credible. But it was credible enough for the Daily Mail because it fed into their campaign to vilify people marching for Gaza as anti-British, as opposed to, to British values, as opposed to, to, to older British people, right? Uh, tradition. It's just it, it seems to be completely fabricated. Um, the story hasn't died, though. With no evidence that any poppy sellers have been harassed, the moral panic has switched to fears of harassment, fears of attacks. This is always what happens. They say, oh, you did it. Um, you, you, you've done this awful thing. Oh, you didn't actually do it. Well, people are scared of it now and that's bad enough anyway, right? This was the Sun's headline on Sunday. Where have all the poppies gone? No sellers at stations amid fears of attack. Right? Again, no evidence that any attack has ever taken place. Now, of course, making an enemy of the Palestinian cause comes hand in hand with dehumanizing Palestinians. I do think that's what this is all about. Um, Aaron, I was pretty shocked by those. Oh, oh, I, you know, I'm never shocked by what the Daily Mail and the Sun does. But this campaign to sort of say, oh, there's this, there's this wave of pro-Palestine activists assaulting people selling poppies at stations. We have literally zero evidence of that. The police clearly have, have looked into this and said, we have no reason to believe that this has happened, right? Which to me reads as this didn't happen. Yet it has now become this meme, this sort of talking point. Oh God, how can we continue to let these protests go on when even elderly poppy sellers are getting attacked? Yeah, it goes back to a line I said recently, Michael, which is that a lot, a lot of legacy media doesn't exist to tell you even what to think or what to feel. And I think what's going on with regards to the poppies and and this kind of uh, this choice. There was a, a picture in the Evening Standard today as well. You know, the the poppy on the flag of Palestine. Which will you choose? Uh, of course, you, you you shouldn't need to do that. Um, what this is really, Michael, is an exercise in psychological manipulation. They are trying to prime the average person to associate um, support for Palestine, the Palestinian flag, as being in opposition to everything one associates with the poppy. This is something from a, an ad campaign or or a Machiavellian uh, ruse to to fundamentally brainwash people. Uh, and like you say. This has no basis in fact. So they're having to contrive stories which haven't actually happened. I want to go back as well to what you said with regards to Douglas Murray when he was on the Trigonometry podcast. They were kind enough to have me on. Perfectly affable people. Um, always open to talking to people they disagree with, which I think is hugely important. But what Murray said there, I was really shocked by. But also it's not particularly coherent. Because he's saying, well, the indigenous population, if they're the ones that matter and the rest of you have to bugger off, then immigrants in this country are in trouble. Firstly, firstly, let's just adopt that and, and see how far we can take it. The indigenous people to this country, Michael, as far as we know, um, spoke a language called common Brytonic. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a precursor to modern Cornish and Welsh. Now, imagine, Michael, if people said, people of Welsh heritage, Cornish heritage, said 2,000 years ago, we were extirpated and displaced by occupants, Roman occupiers, and then later by Anglo-Saxons, who kind of sealed the deal, uh, from places like Dorset, where I was born. 
Um, and now we want to reclaim our, 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 our historic inheritance. Uh, in that sort of canon, the occupiers are Romans, Anglo-Saxons, Normans, and basically everybody after what? The first century AD. Okay. So even on his own terms, Douglas Murray's idiotic comparison doesn't work. Okay, imagine if somebody said that, by the way. We want to give, you know, Britain back to the indigenous people of this island. We want to reassert its historic language, its historic, you know, uh, cultural norms, yada, 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 yada. Everybody's going to have to speak uh, Welsh, a bit like you get with Hebrew being reinvigorated as a language, um, hand in hand with 19th century Zionism. Now, of course, there are some major differences. One is that there was the Holocaust, and I think there's a justifiable um, desire amongst Jews, especially after 1945, for them to have their own nation state. They won't be safe in Europe, so they have to have the, a country of their own where will they, they will always be the demographic majority. I think that's completely at odds with liberal democratic enlightenment norms, but, but fine. I mean, it has some sort of historical uh, variables around it, which makes it, I think, explicable. I mean, that's why I support a two-state solution, even though on its own, I think liberal Zionism is quite a dangerous idea. We certainly wouldn't want to see European nationalisms based on it, which is Murray giving the game away there when he talks about it. He would. He would like to see European nationalisms and European nation states being based on a, on a similar ethical uh, system. Uh, but it doesn't work. It would be an idiotic thing for anybody to say. And then secondly, as you've already sort of mentioned, that isn't what's happening. You know, the people that have migrated to this country didn't enter here illegally. I think Murray, at this point, perhaps thinks they have. I, I don't quite understand. Maybe he views people like myself as being completely illegitimate here. I have to say, Michael, I've received things in the last few weeks, the last month, which I've never got before on social media, ever. Multiple people saying, you know, lock your door. You'll either leave in a boat or a coffin. Um, go home. We'll send you back. I was born here. Uh, and, and these are the forces that people like Mr. Murray are unleashing. And my view is they know what they're doing. They know what they're doing. And they see the success of, of a certain kind of Zionist project in Israel. They see that as going hand in hand with a certain kind of European ultranationalism. And that's not accidental. Uh, but on the specifics of, of, of the UK, you know, just, just utter stupidity. You know, English is a language which is, is based upon um, Anglo-Saxon, and it's a, it's a language of, of, of occupiers. Um, in Dorset, I mean, there's some remnants of it. You know, I think Sir Nabbas, you know, they had the, the, the hilltop um, uh, man with the club. Okay, CERN, we think, might be a, a Celtic word. There's not many. Most toponyms, most words, most names in the English language come from Anglo-Saxons. So he's showing himself there as not perhaps the smartest chat, but also, I think, exposing a really important truth, which is for his political project of really a, a, a broadly homogenous white Europe, which in no way accepts any kind of dissent. I mean, I, I, that's not just racial, uh, ethical, political. He has a major problem with socialists, regardless of their skin color. Um, I, I think he would like to model it on the kind of country that uh, not just Netanyahu, but those to his right want to build in Israel. And, and look, in a way, it would be good almost to talk to him because how far does he want to take that? You know, there are two political parties right now in the Israeli government, a very right wing government, two political parties in that coalition with Netanyahu, which don't let women stand for office. 
So I think, you know, it'd be good to pin him down here about what precisely he wants us to model uh, from Israel and from the Israeli right. Uh, I, I am very grateful to be living in a country where people can get on with their lives, their tolerance, and they just broadly want to be happy and have a live and let live attitude. I think this, this fundamentalism, this zealotry from Douglas Murray, look, it gets big numbers on social media. I'm sure it goes down a treat in the United States. But a reason why people like Farage have done so well in Britain over the last 20 years, Michael, is because he looks like he's having fun. He looks like he's a laugh. You might want to have a beer with him. What we're looking at with Murray is something quite different. We're looking at a zealot. We're looking at somebody who's deeply uh, ideological in their political commitments um, in a bad way, not in a thoughtful way where you can have a conversation with them. Uh, so, look, it's good in a way that he's out there. And I, I think it's also important to say, Michael, yes, not everybody who disagrees with us here at Navarra Media, not everyone who supports Israel um, and, and, and doesn't really have much truck with the argument for a ceasefire, for instance, not everyone agrees with what Mr. Murray is saying. I would say not even a, a minority of them, actually, nowhere near, uh, even a, a, a decent minority. I think it's a very, very... Um, ultra-minoritarian arguments he's making, which makes it all the more astonishing he finds himself in the Jewish Chronicle. Um, let's go to our next story. As Israel bombards Gaza, the dehumanization of Palestinians is reaching grotesque proportions on both sides of the Atlantic. Have a look at this moment in Florida's House of Representatives. We are at 10,000 dead Palestinians. How many will be enough? I also... One of my colleagues just said all of them. Wow. One of my colleagues said all of them. One of my colleagues also stated that this is gonna dry up their fundraising if we vote on this resolution. I also want that, like that's what we've become in this state. That's what we've become in this state where we don't care about innocent babies that don't even get the opportunity to blow out their first birthday candle. So she said, how many Gazans have to die? And a state representative, an elected representative said all of them, all of them. That's a call for the genocide of 2.2 million people, right? It was a Republican called Michelle Saltzman who said that. Now, unlike Rashida Tlaib, so we talked about her on a previous episode, Saltzman has not been censured. So Tlaib said, from the river to the sea, Palestine should be free, or at least she defended or justified other people saying that. Um, and she was censured. She was the third person this century to be censured, which is sort of one step lower um, than, than being kicked out of Congress, the only Palestinian-American in Congress. She was censured for saying that. Someone in the Florida House of Representatives said that every single Palestinian, 2.2 million of them, should die, and there have been no consequences just it's 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 so so appalling right it also doesn't seem that she is particularly rare when it comes to sort of viewpoints of of republicans these were moments from the most recent republican primary debate as president of the united states what would you be urging israeli prime minister benjamin netanyahu to do at this moment governor DeSantis? I would be telling Bibi, finish the job once and for all with these butchers, Hamas. The first thing I said to him when it happened was I said, finish them. 
finish them. I would tell him to smoke those terrorists on his southern border, and then I'll tell him as president of the United States, I'll be smoking the terrorists on our southern border. If you want to stop the 40 plus attacks on military personnel in the Middle East, you have to strike in Iran. Don't want to bomb Iran as well. Um, Aaron, I mean, we've had lots of criticisms of Joe Biden, of the current American administration. Um, some people have sort of been sharing clips such as those and sort of saying, well, it would be even worse with the Republicans in power. Um, I'm actually sitting on the fence. With that. I, I've got no idea. I mean, I, I think if Trump was president, then it would have been more likely that Benjamin Netanyahu would have been able to sort of get away with his first choice, which was just to basically empty Gaza within sort of like a week. I can imagine Donald Trump saying like, Egypt, you have to accept this. And then and then maybe that that happening. I think the democratic establishment is a bit more in favor of maintaining the status quo. But at the same time, the thing which is frustrating with the democratic establishment is they're, they're essentially saying, they're giving Israel unconditional material support while saying, oh, we, we'd like them to be nice. So, so it might just be that the difference between the Democrats and the Republicans is that, you know, the, the, the Democrats mean that you get to do ethnic cleansing, but apologize for it. Whereas Donald Trump would let them do ethnic cleansing and he'd say, and that's good, right? I mean, yeah. where do you stand on this sort of the difference between if there were a Republican or a Democrat in, in charge at this moment? Well, on foreign policy, I don't think there is much of a difference. Just generally, you look at China policy and whatnot. I think here, you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, it would be, do ethnic cleansing, do genocide more slowly, please. Uh, take your time. No rush. Um, uh, looking at the candidates as well in the Republican primary, Michael, I mean, these aren't serious people. These are clowns. These are clowns. And they will all be beaten by Donald Trump as long as he stays out of prison. Uh, but they are clowns. And I think there was a great article in the FT yesterday talking really about how the Republican Party now, Michael, are incapable of administering an empire, which is what the United States is. I know people don't like to talk in those terms, but it is. These aren't people capable of administering an empire because that requires tact, diplomacy, thoughtfulness, strategy. Uh, none of these people have that. They're playing to the most base instincts of actually a minority of, of the American electorate. Uh, the point around Iran as well is just crazy. The attacks that are happening on U.S. personnel in West Asia are overwhelmingly coming from Iraqi Shia militias in Iraq and in Syria. They're funded, they're armed by the Iranians, absolutely, but they're coming from the Iraqis. But the American political class can't say that. They cannot say that. And it's actually not being reported more generally um, in the UK either. Again, you'd have to read something like the FT and maybe The Economist. They're quite open about this now. The big variable that people really aren't talking about are these Iraqi Shia militias. Uh, they want to be in Gaza, some of them. They're presently not being allowed to cross various borders to uh, get onto the Israeli, uh, the Israeli northern border. So it's a, it's a pretty remarkable insight into, I think, a collapsing empire. You know, these are people who want to fight Russia, China, Iran, all at the same time. If the Europeans disagree with them, well, screw you. You, you, you can't work like that. And, th and there's a reason why we're seeing uh, comparative diminishing of US geopolitical, political and economic strength vis-a-vis -vis Asia in particular, not just China, um, ASEAN as well, those countries in South and East Asia bordering China. That's where power is moving, in part because of the idiocy of the American political class in the 21st century. I mean, it starts with George W. Bush, his response to 9-11 clearly accelerates the deterioration of American empire and power. Uh, quite quite considerably, and and this is the long tail of that. In terms of the comment as well made in that uh, state state legislature, you know, 
you look at a country like the United States today, Michael, uh, what, 320 million people, maybe more. This was a country which didn't have any white settlers until the early 17th century, permanent settlers. And of course, the indigenous population has disappeared. They've disappeared precisely because of the exterminationist rhetoric uh, that was being put out there uh, and which was called out on camera. And if you want to know why Europeans exterminated people across much of Australasia, across the Western Hemisphere, sometimes too in Africa, if you look at what the Germans tried with the Herero tribes in Southern Africa, for instance, that was also an attempted genocide or what happens with the Brits and, and, and Tasmanian Aboriginals in Australasia, this is where it comes from, okay? And I think for, for many of us, I'm sure some of our, our viewers watching and people listening later on, they knew that, right? They knew that this exterminationist bent within the, let's be frank, the white psyche, of course, there have been many genocides in history. They haven't all been done by Europeans. Uh, I'm half Iranian, Genghis Khan killed you know, many, many people in West Asia and Central Asia. But in modern history, uh, the exterminations that I've just spoken about, almost all executed by white Europeans, we can see here where it's come from. You know, it's hard to understand how did the Herero butchery happen? How did the, the Holocaust happen? How did what happened in, in, in the Western Hemisphere happen? When Columbus discovers Hispaniola and they just eradicate the domestic population, partly, of course, because of the transmission of pathogens, but not just that, not just that. Well, that comment crystallizes it very, very succinctly. Aaron Bastani is the topic of our final story of the night. Aaron Bastani has been on GB News debating whether British MPs should debate a Gaza ceasefire. Let's take a look. I think he's right. They're entitled to have a vote. But we know from the early day motion that was put forward by Richard Bergen that you wouldn't get more than 100 people voting for a ceasefire. And I think this, for me, underscores a deeper point, which is no political party in this country, no major political party, neither the Labour Party nor the Tories, will call for a ceasefire until Washington does. Mm. Because of Brexit, we've had a conversation in this country about taking back control, making Britain great again, all these things. The fundamental truth is on the big questions on foreign policy, the uni party, which is to say the establishment within both Labour and the Tories, have on foreign policy a great deal of consensus, which is nobody in this country determines our foreign policy. Instead, it's set by Washington. And it's not said, it's not mentioned. If Joe Biden did a press conference in an hour saying, I'm demanding a ceasefire, Keir Starmer would come out 90 minutes later saying, I demand a ceasefire, Rishi Sunak would be half an hour later. And I think that says something quite extraordinary and actually quite profoundly worrying about the state of our politics that a country with, what, the fifth, sixth largest economy in the world, uh, a storied military of our own, doesn't act independently of a country thousands of miles away. Uh, I thought that was very well put, Aaron. I suppose I was interested, you know, that there's a couple of arguments you can make as to sort of why we should back a ceasefire. One is a sort of humanitarian argument about Palestinians suffering. And, and the other is sort of the argument you made, which is sort of geostrategic one, which is saying, why are we going along with the United States here? And I suppose a right-wing audience such as that, which tends to watch GB News, I mean, do you think they would be more, you know, they're more persuaded by this idea that we should demonstrate our geostrategic independence from the United States? And so this idea of saying we should take back control and not be lackeys of the United States is potentially a more effective argument than this will save Palestinian lives. I think it is a powerful argument for uh, conservatives, but it's also true. And I think particularly when you look at what's happened to politics in this country really since 2016, there have been, for the first time in a very long time, uh, big conversations around sovereignty, 
who governs and whose interests they govern in. And that's often about trade or immigration. And you could have thoughts about that one way or the other, but that's just what's happened over the last seven years. But we rarely use that frame for foreign policy. And I think what I said there is obviously inarguable. When Keir Starmer becomes Labour leader, and they're saying this is a return, the whole media, this return to sensible, grown-up politics, what do you mean? I'll translate. It means that he will just do what Washington says. When the White House says, jump, the Labour leader says, how high? And that means that all the people in the, the London Big House pundits in zone one and two, they can all say, oh, great, we don't have to think. By the way, this is why most of them love the European Union, right? Because on trade, on immigration, on a bunch of policy areas, we don't have to think. That's true for politicians and journalists. We don't have to do our job. It's really easy. Loads of other stuff is being done in Brussels and in Strasbourg and on foreign policy. Loads of stuff is being done in Washington. We don't have to think. We just, we just do what they say. And of course, if you actually say, well, no, the people are sovereign in this country on trade, on a bunch of other issues too, but also foreign policy, all of a sudden, actually, I think it's a very powerful and democratic argument, an important argument, a progressive argument, but you're right. I think actually a centre-right or a right-wing audience is very open to it. I think it is something which is sort of specific to, to Britain as well, or is it Europe-wide? I mean, Macron has sort of come out in favour of a ceasefire. I mean, you also could look back to you know, the Iraq war, for example, when both France and Germany did not go along with it, with the United States and, and, and Britain did. Do you think we are particularly um, subservient to the United States compared to sort of other comparable countries? I don't know about subservient. I think across Eastern and Central Europe, for understandable reasons, I think they align themselves instinctively with Washington. I think American empire has been very good for Poland, clearly. It's been very good for the Baltics. I'd much rather American empire than Russian empire if I lived in Vilnius or Riga or Warsaw. It's a fact. Uh, it's been less generous to people in East Asia historically, right, or Southeast Asia. But I understand that. So there are, there are people, interests, parties, nations, just as aligned with Washington, if not more so, uh, when compared to Britain. But you're right to say Germany, France, historically two big nations. France did dissent from the line uh, in response to the war on terror. And it's interesting to see people like Dominique de Villepin, who at the time was the foreign secretary, the foreign minister for France under Chirac. You know, actually, he says things even today which are at odds with the received wisdom of the Anglophone world. Uh, I think France is a little bit better on this because, again, like Britain, it's a former imperial power. It has this incredible military history. And the idea that the, the country of um, Napoleon Bonaparte, uh, which made history for centuries, a world leader in so many ways, industry, culture, um, as well as politics, the idea that they should take all of their cues and all of their talking points from uh, the Americans is outlandish, I think, to many sort of French Gaullists. There is that current on the French centre-right. We don't really have it here. We don't really have it in this country. You know, the idea that you criticise American foreign policy and that Britain shouldn't just do what they say historically has been the realm of the left. And it is important to say, not just the radical left, right? Um, in, the, in the 60s, you had the Wilson government. He refused to join the Americans and the Australians, it should be said, in the uh, disaster that was the Vietnam War. Uh, but that was the exception, right? It wasn't the rule. The, uh, the, the rule is, historically, since the war, Labour and the Tories line up and do exactly what the Americans say. And I think actually the direction of travel in Europe, not for France necessarily, I think France still has that very strong Gaulish tradition, but the rule in Europe, I think, is towards that lapdog poodle politics. Uh, if you look at people like von der Leyen, if you look at Olaf Schultz, these aren't people. 
they're not, they're not individuals. They're not w- with big historic political uh, senses of mission. Of course, that can go very badly wrong as well, right? Look at Putin. I'm sure he has that. I, I, I'm, I wish he didn't. Uh, but they're not people that want to set out their own stall in terms of foreign policy in a way that, you know, some leaders historically have done. You know, Schroeder, Merkel, dissented from what the Americans wanted um, in Central and Eastern Europe and also Russia. You might say that was a bad thing, but they did. Uh, but I think the direction of travel actually is in quite a quite a dangerous direction where you see really European leaders just kowtowing and doing whatever the Americans say. You know, the idea that von der Leyen will say anything different to Washington. Come on. Who are we kidding? Um, We've got more from that appearance from Aaron in a second, so stay with us. But we should quickly say that our fundraiser is continuing. Navarra Media is entirely funded by small donations coming from you, our audience, very much unlike GP News. Um, We're looking to gain 5,000 new regular supporters, and we're about halfway there. So if you haven't already, um, then head to navarramedia.com slash support that link is in the description box below on YouTube. Um, And if you have already set up a regular donation, thank you. You make this show possible. We are so, so appreciative. Um, Let's go back to that discussion um, featuring Aaron um, and look at what he said next. We have to start behaving independently of the United States because they don't face the downsides of the mistakes they make. So when Iraq is invaded in 2003, what does it do? It creates calamity across the region, creates refugees. The same with Afghanistan, the same with Libya. Where do those refugees go? They go to Europe. They don't go to the United States. Mm. When we go uh, have a a face-off with Putin, whose energy prices go up? It's not America's, it's Europe's. So this idea that we have to be in hock with the Americans each and every time, no, because of geography, because of their energy resources, they don't have to face the downsides of the choices they make. We do. It's very easy to make these choices. Well, it's very easy to make all these choices when you don't have to actually have to be subjected to any of the, of, of, the, of the pitfalls. And time after time, Europe is facing those and our leaders don't do anything about it. Finally, on this point of the Gazans, Israel could, um, uh, could displace 2.5 million Gazans. Where are they going to go? Egypt. Egypt said privately, we will send them to Europe. America's not going to have to take them. Mm. We do. And yet our politicians don't act independently of US interests because we like Western interests. We mean American interests. And the people that have to pay for that are Europeans. And I include Britons in that. We don't talk about this. And I don't know why. It's a very interesting argument. I've, I've seen you make this a couple of times on, on Twitter. I think you might have written an article about it as well. And sometimes you do get some pushback. You know, people say, you know, it's, it's good you're arguing um, in favour of the Gazans, but why are you doing it with a sort of anti-refugee framing? I mean, how would you respond to that criticism? I think this is so stupid. It's not anti-refugee. It's saying they shouldn't be refugees in the first place. You know, I think there are people uh, that are displaced by war. That's always going to happen. The point is, let's try and keep that to a minimum. You know, there are enough wars and enough suffering in the world for refugees. My, my father was a refugee. Um, he was studying in this country. There's a revolution in Iran, the Iran-Iraq war. He stays in Britain. So I'm, I'm very sympathetic to refugees. My point is, Western foreign policy shouldn't be based upon making as many refugees as possible. That's not a progressive argument. It's crazy. And the thing in particular with regards to the United States, Michael, is this. America can make, and it's quite unique in this regard, America can make lots and lots of bad decisions. It can invade lots of places. It can bomb lots of places. It can do loads of dumb stuff. And it doesn't really affect America, 
right? You can get rid of Gaddafi. Okay, well, what happens in 2015? Libya becomes the launching pad for 1.5 million people to come into Europe. I think Europe should welcome refugees. I think it ideally should be done in a coordinated way, not in a country with Libya post-Gaddafi, which has open-air slave markets. Again, maybe I'm not being sufficiently left-wing, but that's my view. Um, so America can do that. They can you know, invade Iraq. Oh, no, it's gone wrong. Oh, no, ISIS is created. Oh, no, millions of refugees are not just going to Europe, by the way, elsewhere in West Asia. Um, oh, no, we invaded Afghanistan. Millions of refugees go to Pakistan. Millions of refugees go to Iran. Oh, dear. Okay, let's have a confrontation with Russia. Our energy prices are still cheap, but Europe's are skyrocketing now. Oh, don't worry. We can sell energy to Europe. So America makes all these decisions, which don't necessarily benefit America in the long term, but certainly don't harm them. Europe goes um, hand in hand with them and then gets absolutely hammered for them. We're getting more expensive energy, massive food inflation. We're getting millions of people being displaced in our near abroad. And I think that's really underscored with the example of Gaza. You have, Michael, this is crazy to me. You have conservatives in this country cheering on Israel in maybe displacing 2.5 million Gazans. You have a private Egyptian source quoted in the Financial Times saying, well, if they come here, we're sending them to Europe, right? Which is quite a credible thing to say. Egypt's got 38% inflation, population of 110 million. I, I can see why they might, you know, expedite the, tra the travel of some people to Europe. And you have, you have European conservatives cheering this on. And presumably, when hundreds of thousands of Palestinian refugees come to Europe, they say, how did this happen? It's like Afghan refugees coming to Europe after, after invading that country. How did this happen? Or Syrians, or Libyans, or Iranians, or Iraqis. How did this happen? And this is really crystallized with, um, with Douglas Murray, right? Because he's a neocon. Douglas Murray would love a war with Iran. He would love a war with Iran. Um, neocons loved the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. That was their thing. But I don't understand how you can win wars perpetually in West Asia, but then complain when refugees leave those countries and come towards Europe. It doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, so I think this is a really important argument, Michael, that Europe can no longer afford to be party to the bad decisions made by the United States, because frankly, it doesn't really impact what's happening to the US. It does for us here in Europe. I think that's very well put. Um, we're going to wrap up there. Um, I imagine lots of you will be going to the demonstrations in London and elsewhere. Um, good luck to everyone going out there. Um, don't desecrate any monuments, but I'm sure no one was going to do that anyway. That was never the intention. That was always just a moral panic from the conservatives. And I think it's really important that the largest number of people as possible um, comes out to demonstrate that we are not happy. We do not consent to our government giving unconditional support to Israel as they bomb kids. Right? We do not consent to that. So important that people aren't deterred by the, uh, I, I suppose, by the hate essentially that's coming from Suella Bradman and others. Um, Aaron, thank you so much for joining me tonight. I'm going to miss you for the next couple of weeks and all of my best wishes to you and your wife, Charlotte. Very exciting times. It is exciting, Michael. I'm really uh, glad we passed on a, a strong note here. Look, one hour 40. It was a great show. I'll miss you, but I'll be back uh, very soon. And I'm sure you will keep all of our viewers and our listeners updated with everything that matters. I'll do my best. That's all I can promise. Um, thank you all for tuning in. This show will be back again on Monday. For now, you've been watching Navarro Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarro Media. Go to navarromedia.com slash support.